Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us again at Commitment Matters. Well, we're going to eat some vegetables today, conversationally speaking, but please stay with it as we just might be able to tool you up on a topic that can be a little mm, intimidating. Some of you have reached out and expressed concern, frustration, wonderment, and even confusion when it comes to the twin topics of cybersecurity and data security. Some of the news headlines out of the past few weeks have left many of you dismayed and fearful about exactly what conversations you should be having with your current IT provider or with a prospective new IT provider. So we went straight to the best expert we know on the topic in order to bring you some fundamental key concepts, a list of things to ask, and some things to think about. We want you to walk away from today's episode feeling more confident about what to think when it comes to these matters and how to discuss them with your IT professionals. Kevin Nancy Helser speaks the language of business first and IT second. So chances are this might be a highly digestible conversation for you. He's the COO of Premier One, which is an IT consultant and service provider for title agents. And I think you'll be able to detect notes of his MBA shining through as he talks about evaluating this critical aspect of your business. Listen, we know it's scary out there, and you hope that putting your stuff in the cloud meant that you were going to be more protected. And in some ways that can be true. But what else needs to be factored into those decisions? And how do you successfully monitor what's going on without becoming an IT propeller head yourself? That's where this conversation can really help. Oh, and one more pro tip. If you use a third-party IT provider or cloud service, Make sure your cyber insurance policy covers third-party hosting. We talked last week with an agent who was impacted by the latest ransomware attack, who only found out that her insurance policy did not cover third-party vendor breaches until after she called to file a claim. You'll want to leave this episode with a checklist of questions asked, but please put that one at the very top of your to-do list. There is absolutely no comfort in having an insurance policy that does not fit your actual cyber scenario. That would actually be quite a revolting development. Now that we have that piece of homework as priority one for you, please enjoy this conversation learning what else to think about and ask about with Kevin from Premier One. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Commitment Matters. And there's so much timely about this topic. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Mary. I want to start with some sort of basic fundamentals that we're talking about in an approachable way. I think a lot of times when people even see us in conversation, they just sort of want to turn the other way and run because they think, you know, they see our little propeller spinning on our head and think, oh, that's a deeply nerdy conversation. I don't feel conversant in it. And it's just stuff that's floating above people's heads in in a million pieces. And I wanted to spend a lot of time together today sort of breaking down some basic concepts, some basic vocabulary, some things to ask, some things to know, things to consider. And I knew you were exactly the right person to do that. Premier One is a hosting provider for a myriad of business, but you kind of really focus on title and settlement. Is that fair? I know you have a big chunk of title and settlement business. Sure. So we're certainly well-versed in the title and settlement space. And as it relates to our services, I, I think we want to make sure that we clarify that we're not a hosting provider in the sense that we do not provide uh, server hosting to our clients. We're more of a hosting facilitator. And our preference is to deploy on Microsoft Azure infrastructure, but we can also deploy on-premise, hybrid, and we'll talk through all of those different options as, as we're going through today. But we do specialize in the title space, And that has allowed us to understand the business of the clients we're trying to support, understand what it means to be at a closing table and if, you know, what the problem is if you can't print checks right now and all those little things that matter in the day-to-day happenings uh, of a title agent. You guys aren't new to this, right? I've been interacting with you guys for 20 years that I know of, and you were around before that. So this is not your first rodeo, safe to say. And I'm guessing you've learned some things, especially about title and settlement over that time. Oh, yeah. Premier One's been around since 1991, and we've grown with the industry and our clients have grown. We have definitely seen it evolve and certainly most recently seen it evolve in the area of security. We've been around since before ransomware was a thing. We remember when wire fraud wasn't such a big deal because 
it, it wasn't as targeted as it is now. We've definitely seen the evolution and been there to, to help our clients adapt over time. And that's part of the appeal, right? I hear so many times from folks that at this point, they almost feel if they don't partner with someone like Premier One, they almost feel like they have to be an IT shop first and a title and settlement agency second in order to try to keep up with sort of all the things that go on, not only with the fraud and regulation changes, but also just expense wise. And so I want to be sure and talk about some of those things, too, that it's been my experience that you guys kind of take care of all that with some activities on behalf of the customer that they must do. But by engaging with someone like you, then they're able to really focus on the production and revenue and specialty aspects of the title and settlement business. Do you have a lot of customers telling you that? Yeah, I think that's where we want to fall in terms of how we provide value is that, first of all, don't operate on an island. Premier One is able to work with lots of different businesses inside and outside of title, but certainly within title, we've developed great relationships with the industry, with, you know, different title agents, different vendors, and that allows us to understand the breadth and the scope of the industry. So when our clients comes to us with a problem, our hope is that we already have an answer. So earlier you mentioned a few different models, types of purveying. When I came into the industry, we don't want to talk about how long ago that was. We did use computers, but it was DOS-based. You had a box supporting that that sat under your desk. Nothing was networked and most of the forums we still hand typed. So that's like the rudimentary version of on-prem, on-premises. So I just want to kind of walk through the stages of evolution and the different methods, because I think a lot of times we use phrases like on-prem and assume that title and settlement knows what we mean by that, and they don't. We view this in, in kind of three different categories. And really what we're talking about is where is your data and how are you accessing it? That's what we're defining. So on-premise, your data is in your IT closet in the building that you're sitting in or your main office. Hybrid would be where you're leveraging two types of technology. You might have an on-premise server that's holding your data, but then you might also use cloud services to facilitate your communications, such as email, Microsoft Teams, things of that sort. So that would be a, a hybrid type of environment. And then a, a pure cloud environment, just remember, it's still on hard drives. It's still on tangible, physical metal. It's just a matter of where it is. So in terms of cloud hosting, there's really two main types, and that is private cloud or public cloud. Within those two types, private cloud would be server infrastructure that you own and you have it located in some type of data center facility that you lease space from. Or you might have a provider which provides private cloud. Basically, they're buying the servers, renting the space, and then allowing you to lease that. The difference is minimal in form, but significant between private and public cloud. Public cloud is similar in that your data is on servers in data centers, but these are very large data centers owned by Microsoft or Amazon, typically. So again, kind of coming back to the definitions here, it really comes down to where is your data located and how are you accessing it and using it? Is it in your office or is it somewhere else? Okay, and you made a distinction earlier because I think the common parlance is cloud provider. And you said, well, we're really more of a cloud facilitator. So let's talk about the difference between those two things. Thanks for asking that. Premier One does not purchase and then lease or resell server infrastructure as a service. There are private cloud providers out there that do that. And in our view, basically they're competing with the likes of Microsoft and Amazon, but providing a smaller, more niche service. There are pros and cons to that for sure, but our strategy for our business and for our clients has been go with the winners. We know that we cannot compete with Microsoft or Amazon in their economies of scale as they build out massive data centers all over the country and all over the world. So let's leverage what their successes and the platforms that they're providing on top of that, uh, provide a secure and efficient 
platform which our clients can use to be productive. Then you are managing those services and providing a broad range of services on top of that existing infrastructure. So that's sort of the first bit. In this scenario, the on-prem part for agents essentially goes away, right? Their data is somewhere else. What are some of the key thoughts or concerns that need to go into the decisioning of which is right for a certain agent? And I'm sure that's a long process, but what I'd like to do today is help folks build up kind of a check sheet of things to consider, things to ask. So what are some of the first decisions that go into which model might be right for a given agent? I think you want to draw a distinction right out of the gate that there are really two categories to consider. The first is where. Should I go to the cloud or should I not? That answers the question of where am I going to put my stuff? But then you have to determine what am I going to do once I've found that location? So when we're talking about cloud, a lot of people think, well, the cloud is more secure. It's not. There's really no difference in terms of security, whether your data is located on hard drives in your office or hard drives in Microsoft's data center, except they've got bigger locks and, and better keys, right, for those physical facilities. But aside from that, that just covers where it's located and how you're going to access it. So what you're going to put on it, how you're going to implement that, that defines security right? The security of your infrastructure depends not on whether you're in cloud or not, but how you've implemented your system. How do we decide what's best for our business? Cost is a big factor. Being in the cloud is not a cost-saving move. I think some cases people look at it that way or start out down that road thinking that money's going to be saved. This is really a, more of a question of CapEx versus OpEx, though. Really, practically, where we see this when we're working with title agents, is your company going to grow over the next five years? Because traditional life cycle of on-premise hardware and server infrastructure, typically on a five-year cycle. If the answer is, we've got 50 employees, three offices, and it's probably going to be like that over the next three to five years, then on-premise might be a great option for you. However, what we are seeing in the industry, particularly these days, is a lot of merger and acquisition. And so we've had clients come to us and say, hey, we're a 50-employee title shop, but we're doing an acquisition, and over the next month, we're going to be 75 employees, and we're going to add three additional offices. Well, that type of quick scaling can take time if you're using the more traditional on-premise method. That's really where we're seeing kind of the litmus test is either, hey, as a title agent, I know I'm going to grow. I'm looking at acquisition opportunities. In those cases, cloud can really be beneficial to help you scale quickly and consolidate systems, right? So a big part of acquisition is also getting the data. You have to have a place to put that. On-premise, that means you're going to be buying more equipment, and you have to consider that as a part of your acquisition strategy, and what is that CapEx or upfront cost going to be? I think one of the most important questions when determining, should I be hosted in the cloud, should I be on-premise, what's the difference, is how quickly do you need to scale? Or do you know? If you don't know, then don't assume that you're not going to scale. One of the things that I've seen agents do in the past is when they're comparing whether to do an on-prem or transition all or in part to cloud is they'll tend to look back either at their current year's IT costs or last year's IT costs and do the math from there. And to your point, you really have to look over that three to five year life cycle of hardware maintenance fees on servers, updates, all of those things. And if you look at over the past five years, and that's assuming you've done all of the maintenance and had all of the expenses incurred into keeping that sort of top of the line, state of the art system internally, a lot of times you'll have a spike in year three in costs or year five in costs. 
And so it sort of that last year look back for comparison purposes and then extrapolating forward and what something might cost might not be a true apples to apples comparisons. I don't know if you have any, a lot of agents asking you for help in that analysis. Obviously, we've been doing this a little while and these public cloud offerings have not always been available. So the more traditional method we're very accustomed to saying, okay, let's look at our spend over a five-year period. And based on that, we can determine how the company needs to budget, if it's going to stay status quo. If your goal is to grow 20%, then add to that original budget 20 to 30% to adjust for that in terms of spend. Just to kind of throw the veil off on this, though, there's a significant financial cost difference between these options with on-premise being cheaper. Okay. If you're willing to buy the equipment up front, you have a good place to put it, you have a good IT partner who's able to manage it efficiently, and then you keep up with that maintenance, you will see cost savings over time when compared to deploying in a public cloud infrastructure, if all you're looking at is the financial aspect. And that's really where it's key to understand the value of being able to scale quickly. There's a tangible value is, you know, it's opportunity cost, right? If you're going into major acquisition mode and there's a benefit to acquiring three companies this year instead of one, and you can accomplish that because you're cloud hosted and you can scale those resources quickly, then there's a financial tangible impact that you can measure. Might be tougher to measure, but there's a number. Mary, the other thing I would say regarding cloud services is one of the benefits is you don't necessarily overbuy like you might have to with on-premise. If your business scales down, we've torn out racks and racks of servers for companies that grew quickly and then busted and didn't need that equipment anymore. Well, they're not getting their money back for that, right? Yeah, it sunk. With cloud infrastructure, that is scalable, not just up, but up and down. So you have that elasticity for whatever the business climate is going to be three years from now, which <laughs> we're, we're all of two minds right now. We hope it stays like this, but we know we won't survive it staying like this. There might have to be some pairing back, right? That's right. Systems that are dynamic in that way do provide some tangible benefit and some future proofing too. And I've noticed when we go consult with customers or prospects, usually when we see an on-prem deployment, it is basically a single data center or it's physically in the main office and there's some sort of backup happening. I want to circle around to backups later because they're quite the hot topic right now, thankfully. But usually we don't see any high availability, redundancy, any true disaster recovery plan. The disaster recovery plan tends to be if stuff hits the fan, we'll find another place to host and we'll cram our backups in and, and pray that the backups worked effectively every time. And that's usually going to take a significant amount of time to accomplish all that. I think the structure you guys provide is a little bit different. And I think it's a little bit murky for people to understand what that high availability, that true disaster recovery posture means. So can you can you 101 that for us? There's a couple of terms to be aware of, whether you're talking to Premier One or any IT company. These terms are RTO and RPO, recovery time objective and re recovery point objective. When you're talking about backups, it's important to understand the difference between these. And I'm not going to go into a long lecture about the technical details of them, but as it relates to your business, think of how much data have I lost if an event occurs? And typically, if you've lost less than 24 hours of data, then it's pretty easily sustainable. So that would be recovery point objective. Recovery time objective is if everything catches on fire and burns down, how much time does it take for me to be back up and running again? Two very different components of backup and disaster recovery, but both are critical to have an answer to. That's a discussion that really needs to be had. And again, I think... A lot of people in the title and settlement space are just intimidated about it. And a lot of times, Kevin, I don't think I'm telling you any great surprise, but I'm going to give a little confession. When I was in the title settlement world exclusively, I was so intimidated by y'all in IT. I hated to even ask a question because 
<laughs> it's so obvious to you because it's your world, but it's not obvious to us. And yet we shouldn't be intimidated to ask these questions and have these conversations and even say, I don't know what that means because Kevin, on the flip side, I could wax to you about appurtenances all day long and not understand necessarily why you don't know. Even if people don't know what your answer should be, if I ask Premier One, what's your RTO and RPO standard? I don't necessarily know what follow-up question to ask you. I, if you say 12, I don't know if that's good or bad. Or So I'm guessing that part of this is just a dialogue and a lot of education along the way and that people shouldn't be intimidated, even though that's our instinct to feel intimidated about it. You know, I, I think you make a good point that technology can be intimidating. There is a lot of expertise. And frankly, there's a lot of people in that space who struggle to communicate well. But just as an encouragement, I've been with Premier One about 10 years. And when I started with this company, I didn't know the difference between a switch and a firewall. I would think people would be surprised to hear that, Kevin. It's not inaccessible. The point is that you don't need to understand it so in depth that you can walk alongside your IT provider. You need to be able to do two things. One, you need to be able to trust your IT provider that they're gonna do what's best for you. And then number two, you need them to speak to how it's going to affect your business. Our whole goal at Premier One, just as any other provider should be, is that you can rest easy knowing that IT is taken care of. That doesn't mean you should be hands off, but you should be able to know that it is in good hands and that when you do check in on it, you're gonna get straight answers. If you go to your IT company and ask what's my RPO and RTO, and they go into a 20-minute discussion about the definition of it and don't give you an answer, it's a red flag. But if they can give you a simple answer that, you know, if that means that if your data center goes down, then you would lose no more than 24 hours of data, and at the worst case scenario, we'd have you back up within a week, that's the answer you're looking for. So when people are doing this evaluation, is there sort of a quick hit list of things that would be good for them to ask, even if they don't yet 100% understand what all the answers mean. Is there a basic checklist that you recommend that people approach providers in this space or facilitators in this space? You know, one of my favorite first questions that I advise people to ask is, what does the exit plan look like? Because that reveals the answers to a lot of other important questions that really ought to be dealt with in the discussion. So whether you're talking to an existing IT provider or a new IT provider, you need to understand what does it look like if it doesn't work out? And really what that reveals, it's kind of like signing a prenup, right? It's not that you ever want to go there, but you want to understand what the process is going to be. And so the things that that answers is, number one, you want to understand that it's your data. You own it. It's your asset. That is an asset in your business. That helps you understand and clarify, I own the data. If I leave, the data comes with me. It sounds like you're saying there are some contracts or service type templates that don't have that inherently baked in? It can vary. Yeah, it can vary significantly. And that's why the question needs to be asked. But number one, you want to make sure that you have ultimate control over your data, not just the fact that you own it, but how you are able to access it. You know, companies can say, yeah, it's, it's your data. You can have it if you leave. But then they can provide that on a physical hard drive via mail, and that's all you get. As it relates to continuity, that doesn't give you a lot of continuity or it can make it very challenging or lock you in. And so, you know, when you're thinking about what does an exit plan look like, number one, do I have control of my data? Number two, am I in shared infrastructure that makes it difficult for me to leave? Because if my data or if my access is somehow mixed up with lots of other companies, in a manner that doesn't allow me to extract it easily, then again, that might make it really hard for me to make different decisions that are best for my business. Well, and with regard to that data, yes, it is all the title company's data and ownership and control of that should be kept contractually and practically with the title company. 
But really, I even subdivide that a little bit further. There is what I would consider truly the title company's data, which is, you know, the priors and some of the plant information and all those things, things that are ops data pertaining to the business of that business, where that was articulate, the business of that business. But then there's also the consumer data, which is in the custody and responsibility of that title agent, but is not their data to release control to another provider. If a title company says, you know, I'm okay with my transactional data being owned or very tightly controlled by another entity, you do have that choice to make. Don't recommend it, but but you can make that choice. When it comes to the consumer data, that's not really an option unless possibly if you've gotten an opt-in permission from the customer, which isn't being done on any great scale today. Do you guys make a distinction between those two niches of data or is it kind of all the same to you? Well, you know, as far as a, um, what I would say, a facilitator, the data is dealt with the same from our perspective. Our expectation as that facilitator is we provide the platform upon which you can set your data and manage it for yourself. But I think it is an important distinction that, you know, all those priors and things, that's the tangible asset of a title company oftentimes. But the consumer data is just as valuable, not so much to the title company, but to the outside entities that want it, which really pulls us into the question of security. It does. Do you want to talk more about security? I would love to. Okay. (laughs) Not that it's on anybody's mind right now. (laughs) There's certainly been a surge just in the past, I would say, 18 to 24 months in activity, not good activity. We're seeing attacks and breaches, not just in the title industry, but across the country, across all industries at a level of sophistication and a volume that we've not seen in the entirety of Premier One's operations. Well, and title and settlement agents are such a big target because A, they handle a lot of money, and B, and this is what fraudsters really prey on, is everything we do in title settlement is last minute, urgent, urgent, urgent. Somebody's, you know, life decision or life moving is involved. And so you combine a lot of money with a process that moves very quickly and under a lot of pressure, and that is just a sweet spot for bad actors, right? Right. If you think about it, the transactions that we're dealing with are oftentimes going to be the largest transaction that the client financially performs in their lifetime. They might do it, you know, a few times throughout their lifetime or or more, but you're dealing with large transactions, which means if you can intercept those in some way, there's a large payoff. But really, if you put on the hat of the attacker or the person trying to make money nefariously, there's really three ways you can do it. You can do it through wire fraud by intercepting a transaction and get a really quick, nice, big payoff. And you can do that in volume across lots of transactions and make a ton of money that way. Number two, you can hold that data and that business hostage using something like ransomware to where they you know, just can't operate unless they pay you a large sum of money. Or number three, you can get access to that data and then sell it on the black market. And it's a goldmine of personal financial data that the title companies have been entrusted with. What has always, I think, protected to some degree that data is that it has in the past been hard to attack small and medium-sized businesses at scale. And that's really where the shift has happened is using artificial intelligence AI systems, the attackers are able to really target and attack small and medium and large-sized title companies at scale quickly and do so in a manner that is hard to discern for humans. That has certainly ratcheted up the game, hasn't it? How does a partner like Premier One mitigate either over and above or with greater economic balance or whatever, then let's say a medium, smaller, medium-sized title agent can do for themselves. What I like to say is you don't want to show up to a house fire with a squirt gun. The attackers are using advanced systems, AI-backed systems to attack. 
if you have not implemented a more modern approach of defense that uses those same or similar systems, but designed to protect you, then you're outgunned and outmatched. And so where Premier One or any IT provider should fit as far as securing your business beyond what the title company can do themselves to implement solutions which have the most impact per dollar that you spend. None of us have unlimited money. And so we have to understand what are the major attack vectors and how can we mitigate the most risk with the least investment? Nothing new to the insurance world, right? That concept. But apply that to your technology and security strategy here. What do we know? We know that most wire fraud incidents are happening via email. That's the attack vector for successful wire fraud attacks. Right. And we know that many ransomware attacks are happening via end user interaction, such as clicking on a link, often via email. And then data breaches, we know that also very much involves, you guessed it, email, right? So when we're looking at how can we best mitigate the risk, our belief is that utilizing AI-backed tools which analyze your incoming and outgoing email and disrupt bad communications, that's one of the best things you can do. And then secondly, aside from that, there's certainly a number of tools and services out there, but ultimately most of these successful attacks don't happen between 8 and 5 p.m. The people that are attacking us are not stupid. They know we're sitting in our desks during the day, and they know that we get up and go home and have dinner and go to sleep at night. And frankly, a lot of times when we're sleeping at night, that's when they're not sleeping. 24-7 Security Operations Center, or SOC, is another critical component of mitigating risk. Having both systems, AI-backed systems, which are intelligent, watching the activity on your infrastructure even after you walk away from your desk, and then having human-backed services, which can then act on those things even more intelligently and understand the human component of what's going on, that can really do a lot to reduce the risk to your business. I'm going to give an example from 20 years ago, and hopefully then you can update it into today's language and, and scenarios. But I remember the first time I toured Premier One, you guys had the physical data center. It was a thing of beauty, nice floating floor. It was nice and cold in there, lots of blinking lights. You could tell it was very expensive. But the most impressive thing for me wasn't those machines and facility that they sat in, but you guys had like a, a map from War Games. And you could look at anybody's network, your customer's network. For example, if they had a printer go offline, Oftentimes you guys knew it and were troubleshooting before they realized it and picked up the phone and called you. And yes, in those days they did pick up the phone and call nine times out of 10. So it sounds like you're just talking about a more modern version of that, which is a lot of time you're detecting and mitigating or at least disrupting and putting a pause into some of these things that are going on while title and settlement people who don't have much of a life right now tend to try to go have a life. So you're able to be the sentry there and alert things, block things, fix things before they even know there's a problem. Is that fair? That's exactly right. I think back then the, the security component of that was not as important. What we were talking about was using complex passwords, right? I mean, that was security back then. Right. That was our sophistication then. Yeah. The world as it is today looks very different and has changed very rapidly. Even from an IT perspective, we're used to constant change and this is rapid. So what we see is operationally, if you need support from internal IT or from external IT, whatever, you need support when printers go down and servers aren't working and you know the software, something needs to be rebooted. All of that happens during the day-to-day -day and that affects your efficiency. But now, in addition to that, you need that same level of attention to security because events and things are changing and happening Attacks are coming in all the time on an ongoing basis. Right this minute, right this second, these things are happening. And if you're not watching for that, and if you're not protecting yourself against that, it's not if, it's when that's going to be successful. And that's more than a full-time job for one IT person. It's more than a full-time job for one IT company, I would even say. Certainly an internal IT person can support your users, and your hardware, but don't set them up for failure 
because one person is not going to be able to protect your infrastructure. And that's where I would say, even Premier One, acting on an island, we can't do that either. And so you have to take a layered security approach where you're not just using one person, you're not just using one company, but you've implemented multiple layers from different systems, different vendors, in order to build a security stack that if one layer fails, the next layer will prevent. Well, and I love how you connected the dots between title and settlement and insurance and what you guys do, because I think a lot of people would be shocked with one of your earlier statements about how, hey guys, this isn't cheaper. Because that was the pitch early on as hosting sort of emerged as sort of a new way of doing things. The pitch was very much economic in drilling IT costs down, taking advantage of a cooperative, a collective with a team of people who do this for a living and so they're able to be more vigilant. And it reminds me very much like, you know, if I as a buyer or seller wanted to do my transaction without a title company, could I do it? Yes. Could I figure out how to draw a deed and go down to the courthouse and file it myself? Yes, I could. Chances are I wouldn't do it right. It would take a lot more time. And then I'm not going to have the levels of protection, including in that scenario, the agent, you know, mitigating risks making payoffs, doing all the things that need to be done, and then the segregated ongoing responsibility by virtue of the underwriter. So it sounds like to me you're saying, while we're not going to necessarily be at first blush cheaper, when you factor in the insurance-like components of it, that's where it starts to make more financial sense. Is that fair? Sure. You know, I think it's fair to say that we all hoped that moving to public cloud infrastructure theoretically would decrease costs as you find ways to leverage those economies of scale. And in a vacuum, maybe so, but the world continues to change as that service is being provided. So, you know, if you think about deploying an on-premise system, you make a very good point, Mary, that there are a lot of features, security features, licensing features that just simply aren't available or aren't easily attainable at a small on-premise scale. Specifically, thinking about Microsoft 365 and all of the products and services that they implement as a part of being in that collaboration environment, you can't run Microsoft Teams in an on-premise server. And also, implementing multi-factor authentication in an on-premise system can be significantly more difficult than what's already built into the platforms that, are, that you're leveraging with public cloud. Can you take a moment to say a little bit more about multi-factor authentication, because I think everybody sort of has a cursory respect for how it might be helpful, but by God, when we're trying to log back in to get something done with our hair on fire, we just, what's the damn code? So can you talk people through a little bit of how to think about that piece of the protection? Because I know it frustrates them multiple times daily. The best, consolidated way I can explain that because I log into multiple systems every day. I probably use half a dozen multi-factor authentication codes in an app every morning when I sit down and log into my system. Is it a little bit of a hassle? Yeah, absolutely. But it is far less inconvenient than dealing with a data breach. And what we see is that Often, and you know, this isn't just title, but we do see a significant pushback with users and employees in the title industry where they just don't want to do it. It is, it's an extra step. They got to use their cell phone. There's lots of reasons why you might say, well, we just don't really want to do that. I will tell you though, 100% of the time in our experience, after a company has sustained a data breach, they implement multi-factor authentication. After the horse is out of the barn. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. The only difference is, are you going to do it before the data breach or after? Right. Exactly. Because probably the number one most important security feature that you can implement for your business, regardless of whether or not you have participation from an IT company, is multi-factor authentication. You have a lot of control over that yourself with very little, if any, cost for some of those systems. It's already built into Microsoft 365. If you're using Microsoft 365 and you do not have multi-factor authentication, the only thing stopping you is turning on multi-factor authentication. 
So that's something you would recommend people do now, even if they said this isn't a time for me to make a change to infrastructure and all of that, because again, we're blowing and going, we're so busy, but that's when you would recommend that everybody do right now today, if they haven't already. The only better time to do it than today was yesterday. Yesterday. (laughs) That is the best tool. It's not perfect. There's no security tool or system or option that is 100%. So it's those layers that matter, but that is one of the most effective. Do you want to talk at all about the advantages and disadvantages of VPN? And the reason I ask about that is, you know, during the pandemic, um, we've obviously had a lot of customers who needed to have some percentage of their staff working at home, and they probably weren't set up for that before. And it was push out, get home, let's see if you can connect, go, go, go. And now they're thinking maybe, you know, they'll have some hybrid work approach and especially on the title side, that's easier to do. I suspect that we have a lot of folks out there not connecting back to their environment via VPN with people working from home. Any words of wisdom on that? Yeah. So the VPN discussion is interesting because five years ago, we probably would have said this is one of the more important things that you can do to bolster your security as a company. And it still can be that to some degree, but really from a modern viewpoint, we see like SSL VPN agents, things that allow you to connect back to your office infrastructure. We see that as more of just a connectivity feature and and most certainly not a significant security feature. The reason is if it's not implemented correctly, the device that you're connecting from, if you think of a VPN as basically just an internet cable, an ethernet cable that's plugged into whatever device you're sitting at, might be a device at the library, it might be some walk-up thing at the hotel, it might be you know your computer at home that your kids play games on. If you connect that into your company's network, If it's not configured correctly, you could be exposing your company to the things that are on that device. If done right, they can be helpful in connecting people who are otherwise physically outside of the office or the the data infrastructure. But really what you're looking for from a security perspective is something that allows for remote connection to your data from outside of the office and specifically is secured with multi-factor authentication at the very least. Okay, and then you mentioned earlier the true fact that most breaches come as a result of malicious email. You know, a lot of folks, including RamQuest, have built some portals for people to try to share wiring instructions and documents and closing information in a more secure way. There has not been a rush to embrace them for a couple of reasons. One, a lot of the lenders have their own portals and want you to use theirs, great, fine. But also, because we in the title settlement industry blow and go so fast and our realtors are on the move and they say, the realtor says, just email me, just email me, just email me. So we can't, as much as we would like to move away from that email paradigm because we know the risk that's there, we also know as a business operations practical aspect, we're not there today. So I wanted to circle back and and talk about some of those things that you're doing to give enhanced protection and break tapping to to potential email problems. Email is the common medium. Like it or hate it, there's no getting away from it. It's what everyone knows how to use. You've got it on your phone, you've got it on your computer, everyone emails. And so many times implementing some type of portal-based product, even if it is more secure, will frustrate the end user. And Ultimately, we're in service businesses, right? So that matters to us. And so if you assume that you're going to use the best product and most secure product available where you can, but not 100% of the time will that work in providing your service. If there are times that you have to use email to do that, then you have to have a contingency plan and know how you're going to do that in a way that is as secure as possible. It will be less secure. And you have to acknowledge that and do your best to mitigate it. One of the things that is extremely not technical, but still incredibly relevant is calling to verify. I know there's there's nothing groundbreaking about that, but certainly, you know, as far as as the human aspect, providing training to your employees, providing notices to the buyers and sellers about this and just communicating clearly how you are going to provide wiring instructions and that 
call verification is required can mitigate a lot of it. But at the end of the day, email is a piece of this. So how can we best mitigate these events where an attacker gets access to a sender's mailbox, a recipient's mailbox, or somewhere in between, right? And this is where, like I said before, no one company can do this. I could hire a hundred people to just filter through emails of one title company for one day, and we'd maybe hit 10 or 20% of them, right? Because the volume is so great. And so we have to understand that's where we leverage artificial intelligence. That's where we use these more advanced and modern services to look at the data and the communication that's coming in and going out and analyze that and analyze the behavior of it, the heuristics to determine what's actually happening in this. And so there are more modern systems now available. They just haven't been widely implemented yet, but the cost is starting to come down. And also the understanding of the cost of not having them is becoming more apparent. And using those AI-based tools to help analyze the email communication, I think is, is one of the most important components of a more modern security approach. I have to tell you, because we know that the malicious actors are using AI against us, and we know AI is being used in our general direction as consumers, and all that starts to feel a little creepy and starts to give you a little bit of hesitancy regarding the whole concept of AI. But so it's, it's a bit of a relief to hear you say, oh, guess what? We can employ it for our protection and benefit, too, and it's not an impossible thing to do. In fact, I think it's very attainable now. Hasn't always been that way, but we are, as an industry and as a country, are definitely in a position where the decision is not, can we do this, but just, hey, how quickly can we move forward with this now? For the humans that aren't malicious actors who are trying to do the right thing, it feels a little good to have that in our toolkit, just because we know it's in, in the bad actors toolkit as well. So fight fire with fire. It starts to make you feel a little bit more like we can we can win or at least sustain in this war, right? That's right. And I hope that listeners walk away with at least that hope that it is not hopeless and we do have answers to these things. I'll say too, though, Mary, do not ever underestimate a company's most important security tool, and that's the humans that work there. Those are the ones that are going to cause the data breach or the ransomware event or whatever, but they're also the ones best equipped to discern and prevent it. So you can implement all the systems in the world, but if you don't do any training for your employees, if you don't help them understand what to look for and how to prevent these things from happening, then you are neglecting one of your most valuable security resources. I've had more questions in the past few weeks about hosting and clouds and security and breaches and ransomware than I've had in my entire career since I moved over into IT. I'm sure as a provider in that space, you have received some questions. You probably had a busy few weeks as well, and you probably have some things you would want the layperson to understand about that situation. So I'm going to turn that over to you and see what's on your mind. If I can speak to that just generally, one of the things I would say is be insured. If you do not have a cybersecurity policy in place, a cyber insurance policy in place, then go get one and make sure that you understand what it is and integrate it into your disaster recovery plan. If you don't have a disaster recovery plan, start now. It doesn't have to be 10 pages. It can start as one page, but understand what are the most difficult scenarios that you might run into in your business, write them down and understand what steps you're gonna take. As you build out the concept of a DR plan, disaster recovery plan, really you just answers some very basic questions about your business such as, can I maintain my business and be a going concern even if everything breaks down, catches on fire, gets deleted, whatever. So obviously I don't need to tell Title agents this, but insurance is a piece of that, right? It's an important piece. Really, you're talking about two things, prevention and mitigation. Insurance is on the mitigation side. I'm going to ask some deeper questions about that. If they are with a certain class of provider, can you either help 
them with those evaluating those cybersecurity insurance policies and or can they negotiate rates based on having a provider who's you know employing all these things or is that is that a place you guys get into with agents to some degree so what i always say is that we can't provide financial or insurance advice that's ultimately the insurance agent that you're working with who has to do that but one of the more prominent cyber insurance underwriters which a number of our clients work with their application from 2020 to 2021 went from four pages to seven pages the difference being they are now asking specific questions about what prevention mechanisms you have in place a lot of things that we've talked about today and so your it provider should be able to help tell you what do you have in place and what don't you and for the things that you don't what's the answer so that you can put that in place what's the cost right? Is it worth it? You know, what are the things that are most valuable to invest in? But those cyber insurance applications are one of the most valuable exercises you can take. As you're filling that out, you'll realize what are the gaps and then, you know, find a way to fill them. I've heard from people who are very dialed in with what's going on in D.C., we expect to see a reemergence of the lender questionnaires too, because the thought is that the new CFPB is going to re-put the emphasis on lenders for their third and fourth party liability, which was maybe relaxed in the last handful of years. We're expecting to see that again. So are those lender questionnaires something that you help your clients take care of, or are they on their own with that? How does that go? So those always require feedback or input from your IT partner. And certainly we do help our clients through that process. I think one of the more critical things you can do to mitigate all the work that's involved in that, because you're going to get questionnaires left and right all the way throughout the year. I mean, it can be nonstop sometimes. But if you go through the exercise on your own of self-auditing or doing like a SOC audit for your company, that helps answer a lot of those questions right from the outset. And then further, using an IT company like Premier One, who is SOC compliant and has an updated SOC report, can answer a lot of those questions too. So that definitely does make the lender applications a lot easier and quicker. Got it, okay. What we're trying to do here is make sure that title agents are ready to deal with an event. My best advice, I think, is probably assume that you already have a data breach. Most data breaches that are out there today are not yet known or discovered. Uh, they're sitting there quietly, collecting, waiting to pounce. Assume out of the gate that you have one until proven otherwise. If you go into it with that frame of mind, then you can say, okay, let's look at the systems, make sure we have the right prevention mechanisms in place. Let's audit them and make sure we don't have any data exfiltration or anything like that going on. It's a really, I think a wise exercise. And if you find something, it's better to find it now than later. So don't be afraid to do that. There's been a lot of conversation bubble up lately about the proper method of constructing a backup system, testing a backup system, and the degree of reliance on a backup system. Can you give some folks some constructive thoughts and ideas about that? We take the idea of backups, first of all, that is a mitigation measure, right? The point where you have to rely on backups, that means whatever has happened has gotten through your layers of prevention. So now you're mitigating. Might be just mitigating someone deleted a file. It's not always, you know, some bad actor or attack. It could be an oops. Yeah, absolutely. And frankly, most of the time, that's what you rely on backups for. Okay. But what to look for in your backup system so that you can sleep at night knowing that you know something is in place that is proper and correct. And interestingly, I'm finding hints of this on the cyber insurance applications now. Okay. Which is cool, it's great. But backups of your data ought to be stored in a location that is not accessible from, from an account that is set up in your production environment. What I'm referring to is Active Directory, basically the user accounts that you use for you and your employees on a daily basis. None of those should be used 
when securing your backup data. That should be a unique, separate credential, not associated with Active Directory, but entirely made up, stored separately, somewhere that is not accessible on your production system. So if, let's say, a business owner was going to ask their IT person, whether it's a vendor or an employee, about that aspect of their backup situation, what question, how should they phrase that question? The term that's commonly used is air-gapped. Are your backups air-gapped? That's not that's not a standard definition. What one person says, yes, they're air-gapped. Another person might say, no, they're not really air-gapped. But essentially, what you want to know is that your backups are not accessible from your production environment. And that is important because, let's take the scenario of you have a ransomware attack. Why is that position with regard to the backups important? So ransomware is particularly nasty in that it is specifically designed to move throughout all of the systems connected to it. And if you think from an attacker's perspective, what are the systems that are most valuable for them to compromise so that they can hold you hostage? Well, first of all, it's the production data. And then second, it's the backups. So these systems aren't designed to ignore the backups. These people aren't being nice and saying, we'll just get the production data, right? They're actively trying to hit the backups. So in order to prevent that, your backups have got to be physically separate. It's the same concept of keeping your important papers in the safe deposit box and not in your house, right? Absolutely. And never underestimate the value of having your data on a hard drive somewhere. Even if all you're doing is saying, hey, I want a full copy of my database and files once a year. I mean, that's better than nothing. If you have a hard drive in your hand, not plugged into anything that has your data on it, that's a backup. And it's a pretty strong one uh, until you plug it into something bad. Another thing that I think agents get intimidated about is you not only have to have these processes set up and so you can sleep at night and know that they're going okay, but don't you need to do some sort of dress rehearsal too where you act as though there has been a breach and you need to kick over and use your backups, your disaster recovery. And that dress rehearsal thing, it's really easy to say, yes, intellectually, I know we should test this from time to time to make sure it's working as designed, but that can be really intimidating for somebody who's in the title and settlement business to do. So I'm guessing a provider such as yourself can at least consult on that if they're not a customer of yours, because you guys are doing that pretty routinely, right? Yeah, I think what needs to be asked of your IT provider or third party or whomever is you need to be testing your backups on a semi-regular basis. Often we see six months right, where you just say, hey, you know, we want to document a DR test. Typically, in our experience, backups are tested a lot more often than that because operationally people are deleting files and needing files recovered on a more regular basis than once every six months. You can rely on some of that actual operational currents to provide some level of security, but doing a DR test can also help that. It's hard to test every scenario, though. Right. And so that's where the DR plan comes in is maybe you've done a DR test six months ago or three months ago, but something happens that was really beyond the scope of that DR test. Have a plan in place for that. I think that's really important because people have really begun to focus on the security and soundness of their production system. And they also think, OK, we have a backup methodology in place. Maybe it was put in place, you know, 10 years ago, but we have one in place. So that's covered. And to your point, you've got to give that backup information at least as much regular attention as you do your production. Because yes, if the worst happens and, and no, no system is 100% secure, you have to be able to know that the bad actor or the fire or the whatever it was didn't get your backup. And what you think is on your backup is actually there and can be employed. Yep, absolutely. There should be no reason for you to not have access to that information about your backups. That would certainly be a red flag if, if you're not able to get that from whomever you're working with. Okay. And then you guys offer some other services too. It's not like you just have this sort of 
non-physical hosting environment. I think you guys do some frontline support. You do the email stuff that you talked about. You layer a lot of things on top of that too, right? Sure. So Premier One is really an end-to-end IT solution. We like to say, you know, you can outsource your whole IT to us. Keyboard to internet. A computer's having an issue. If your mouse doesn't click, if you need server infrastructure deployed in Microsoft Azure, you need security services put in place for a 24-7, 365 SOC, Security Operations Center, all those different things. And I apologize, it's a lot of jargon. But the point is, yes, we provide end-to-end IT services to the level that we can support our clients and allow them to focus on what they do best. Well, and you host several different title production softwares, right? We're vendor neutral, so certainly we work with all the different production softwares, and obviously we're familiar with the most prominent ones, but then also all the wraparound services that are out there too. We really try and build relationships and expertise around those integrations uh, that can really help facilitate automation and the more efficient flow of, of data. And I think this is a lot of your daily call volume is if they have a question about that title production software, they can call you guys first, right? It might be a training issue. It might be a configuration issue. Those are all things that that you guys help with as well. We really do try and have enough expertise to be helpful for the small things, even as it relates to software. We work with all kinds of software, even outside the title industry. And so the folks that we have here at Premier One, we have an incredible team and they're very diverse in their skill set and in their knowledge. And so throw something new in front of them and a lot of times they're gonna be able to figure it out. Specifically as it relates to the title world, we've seen and touched a lot of different systems. One of the benefits is we can see how they're deployed lots of different ways. We can see which ways are working and which aren't. Sometimes we can look at a problem and say, oh, there's actually a solution for that that maybe you're not aware of. So that's, I think, really the additional value that we're able to provide to to this particular space. Title agents have long needed, ever since it became a very technology-centric business, someone to sort of stand in that gap, often translate, give the tips and tricks, the pointers, ramping up the security, just as a matter of course. The knowledge you guys have is sort of like the same reason that title folks especially go to continuing education. You guys are always staying on the forefront of what's going on, what's out there. And I know a lot of times you're notifying customers proactively, be aware of this, don't click on anything like this. And you kind of add that layer of belt and suspender so that they're not having to go alone and Of course, they can't relax when it comes to any of these things. But to your point earlier, we've really seen that those customers can rededicate their focus to nailing title and settlement and loving realtors and marketing and all of those things that are important to them without feeling like they're wandering around in the wilderness, missing out on important IT perspectives that their business needs to have. We just really see a relief that comes off of those customers so they can go back and primarily focus on what it is they're trying to do. I think it's reasonable to say that it can be a burden to try and keep up with everything that's going on, to try and interface with all these vendors you have to work with. And, you know, you're talking to the database administrator and that person's telling you about SQL and that you need maintenance jobs running and, and all this. So we really try to be that intermediary that can translate between those. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, you can do that, but it's going to bog down your network, right? I mean, there's a cost and a benefit to each of them. It's the same reason you use a primary care doctor. You can go to one specialist or the other or three, five specialists, but ultimately you need someone to go back to that can consolidate that that data together, consider it holistically and make a determination that's best for you as a result. So that's, that's kind of what we try to do. Oh, that's a fantastic analogy. That makes it make all the sense in the world. Well, Kevin, is there anything else that we should have been talking about today that people need to know about that we didn't cover? You know, I think we've covered a lot, but just to kind of, I think, reiterate the best things you can do to your business today, whether it be with Premier One or anyone else, is number one, implement multi-factor. Number two, get cyber insurance. Number three, have a disaster recovery plan. And then number four, 
Assume that you have a data breach until proven otherwise. If you just take those four steps, those don't require working with Premier One, those don't require significant investment in infrastructure or a big change to your business as much as they just require paying attention to some of the most important things that are going on. That's a really good punch list. I like that you kind of aggregate it all that way. It helps people know exactly what to do. Well, we will link your email in the show, but I can't thank you enough for making this approachable, making it comfortable to be conversant in, telling people, you know, all the things they need to worry about, which is a lot, giving them four first things to focus on. And hey, maybe they can check off the box, say we've got these four and sleep a little bit better tonight. So you've provided great value. Thank you so much, Kevin. Absolutely. And thanks for having me. Thanks, Kevin, for breaking all of that down for us and telling us what to look for. We all know that IT security is a constantly ongoing process and is never a destination, but you really made us think practically about many very important things. We want to make sure Kevin is available to you as a direct resource, so of course, producer Amy has linked his email for you in today's show notes. He and the team will be happy to answer any follow-up questions you have, and the whole crew there at Premier One really knows their stuff. Until next time, if you need more staff, try reaching out to a local community college and see if you can create an internship in exchange for course credits. Maybe offer some second shift work opportunities for full-time college students. And remember to stay competitive in the marketplace. Lots of employers are offering signing bonuses and benefits in sectors that don't normally have those programs in place. So keep in mind you're competing with them too. But it's time to reinvest in some new talent in your shop because nothing appears to be slowing down significantly anytime soon. So we need to backfill and support ourselves better so we don't blow a gasket. Besides, it will give you a chance to show someone new that what you do really matters.